Hello, Roy here. I just wanted to let you know that you can listen to The Roy Green Show ad-free on Amazon Music, included with Prime. This is The Roy Green Show podcast. Well, 100 miles into Wendover, Utah for the Bonneville Salt Flats Race Week. And an old high school buddy of mine was running the car that he's built. I hadn't seen him for many years. So uh, they're going to join me as well. That is something else there at the Salt Flats. Holy smokes. Some of those cars hit over 400 miles an hour. 400 miles an hour. Scott Newark joins me, a former Alberta Crown attorney and who knows that area of the world extremely well. We're going to talk about Cotter in a couple of minutes, but uh, that's uh, 400 miles an hour. is just slightly less than they'll tolerate in uh, yeah, then in uh, in Montana. Eh? Well, you know, we're a forgiving people uh, out west. That's uh, sort of the way that we were. Uh, I used to drive that uh, route uh, from Alberta back to uh, to Ontario uh, frequently. It's beautiful. It's, it's absolutely beautiful. Oh, it's uh, it's outstanding. It is incredible. And uh, so on the way home, I, when I was in a, in in Utah, my idea then was to just go east and wind up in Detroit and get across the border there. And, but they were talking tornadoes, so I decided I'd double back and, and ended up driving up through Idaho. In, nothing's more boring than somebody else's vacation, but there's a point here. <laughs> so so uh, I, I went into Montana, and I went north, uh, south-north in Montana into Alberta, and the speed limits are 75 in Washington State, and the rest of the states it's 80 miles an hour is the speed limit, so 130 on the kilometer scale. And at 80 miles an hour, Scott, I was a moving chicane. I was a problem. As people were going around me, I've got a pretty fast car. People were going around me like I was standing still. So, Did you have Ontario license plates? I still do. Well, there you go. That's part of the reason why they were passing you by. Yeah, you think they knew? They even know what Ontario is in Montana? I would think so. Probably left wing, you know. Well, so here I am in this uh, one area, mountainous uh, area of Montana, and it's a divided four-lane highway, really divided. And in the median is a state trooper. That's the only cop I saw on the whole trip that I was aware of. And I'm doing 105 miles an hour, so 190 kilometers an hour in my car, which is right about there. It's starting to get comfortable, that car is. And I saw the cop, and I thought, oh, my God, here we go. He's going to grab me. And nothing. He never moved. Nothing. So a little while later, when I was filling up gas, I mentioned it to the guy at the gas station, and he had one of these uh, Stetsons on, and he looked at me, and he said, this is the West. <laughs> I, didn't know, I didn't know what he meant. But then he said, you know, we didn't have speed limits here, for, and they didn't for most, uh, most of the existence of roads in Montana. Only the last few years they've had speed limits. And he said, uh, essentially, if you're, not, uh, if you're not driving crazy on the road, that's what he, the word he used, then they're going to leave you alone. Well, except that they probably uh, got that uh, on uh, video and have uh, oh, I see. processed it. You'll be uh, a letter in the mail. Charges uh, soon. Yeah, see the letter in or the mail. This, uh, phone <laughs> I should not have admitted this on the radio, should I? No, not at all, Ralph. Uh, anyway, it was a it was a terrific time, and uh, I uh, I really, really, really enjoyed it. And I needed that time off, so. Anyhow, Omar, come back, and Omar Cotter's in the Guess news. What? He's back in the news. He's yeah. back in the news. Uh, he wants to be a nurse. He's been accepted into a nursing program in Alberta. He's got $10.5 bucks, or he's probably got half of that, and the lawyer's got the other half. Mm. But uh, he's in the news because he wants to have his bail conditions 
loosened up so he can visit yeah. with his sister, who has no apparent uh, affection for this country and seemed to be quite happy at the events of 9-11. And, uh, and then there's more over the last couple of days. We find out that the Privy Council investigators, and the Privy Council represents the Prime Minister, Monsieur Trudeau, the Privy Council investigators are looking into whoever the whistleblower was who made it possible for the rest of us to find out that Carter had uh, was, received the $10.5 million infusion into his bank account. And apparently, from what I gather, they're going to punish this whistleblower. And I think it's time for the rest of us in this country to say that whistleblower did us a service. Well, let's start with the, uh, the whistleblowing, because at the time that this was uh, originally released, there was definitely speculation that, in fact, it was being leaked by the government. Uh, and if you remember, it was actually uh, made public on uh, July the 4th. Right, um, and so for uh, for the first little while about that, there was definitely speculation that in fact this was something that the government had uh, decided that it wanted the political arm of government. I mean, right. um, you know, wanted to control the messaging of it, and this is the way that they had uh, done it. And if you remember, uh, this was also relevant uh, because of the timing of the uh, agreement and the transfer of the funds that there was a uh, suggestion subsequently that, in fact, it was being done very quickly so that Cotter would be able to transfer the money so that the, uh, uh, his victims uh, in the United States would not be able to, in effect, try to get an enforcement of the civil judgment they've got against Yeah, Christopher Spears, yeah. widow, and... Um, Tabitha and, uh, yeah, Lane Morris. Lane Morris. And um, that seems to have changed somewhat, but uh, you never know uh, in Ottawa the... Uh, investigation might turn out that it's uh, looking in a mirror. Well, you know, if it, if it is, then uh, then we have reason to be doubly cynical. But if it isn't, if they are actually going after somebody, and if they actually find somebody, I want them to know, at least from my perspective as one taxpayer, I don't want whoever that is to be punished, because that whoever that is, whoever the whistleblower may be, if there is one, uh, that whistleblower did all of us a service. Well, yeah, I, uh, I I think that has probably taken over uh, uh, that particular message as well, too, is that a lot of people are saying, you know, um, okay, we understand that as the government you have the right to make those kinds of decisions about whether to make a settlement or an issue an apology. Um, and, you know, they're based on the, the government's priorities and principles. But the rest of us have a right to know why you're doing that. Um, I wrote a piece actually on this, as you know, uh, in fact, much of the debate took place on your show over the years with uh, Cotter's original uh, U.S. Navy lawyer, Bill Keebler. Right. Um, I had some involvement in some of the discussions with him. And um, the notion that somehow, you know, the Canadian government um, misconducted itself in its interactions with Cotter to some horrible extent, I think is absolute nonsense. And I think Canadians um, have a right to know why the government did what it did. And as I say, I wrote a fairly detailed piece it's on uh, the Frontline Security Magazine uh, website going through that uh, because, as I say, the government has the right to make that kind of a decision, but I think the rest of us have a right to know why they did it. Yeah. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney, is with me, uh, Alberta Crown Attorney and uh, adjunct professor at Simon Fraser University for the master's program, course, balancing civil rights with ensuring public safety, and national security. Is Cotter fit anywhere there? Is he taking the course? No, 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 no I don't mean that. Does he fit into that equation? Oh, I'm sorry. 
Uh, actually, uh, yes, and in in particular, this latest uh, uh, entry into the news again, because it's a little complicated, as is everything with Omar Khadr and the Khadr family. But um, essentially, uh, after he was transferred uh, back to Canada, and uh, and he pled guilty in uh, 2010, and in the agreement uh, admitted to the facts, and also said that he would not appeal the uh, sentence which he uh, he got. He was transferred back to Canada um, and um, was in Canada. He pursued a change in his status out of federal custody into provincial custody. It was a detail in the International Transfer of Offenders Act, the legislation that got him back here. He did it correctly, you know, by uh, go- by going through the legal process. That's one of the complaints lots of us have had is that the Cotters always seem to think that they're above the law. Uh, but he got uh, transferred into provincial custody, and then in uh, 2015, he never applied for parole, which is odd, but because he was eligible back in uh, 20, the end of uh, 2013. But he uh, stayed, and then he, he filed an appeal against his conviction in the United States and then applied for bail. And he went through the legal process, and uh, you know, a court uh, granted him bail, and he's had the uh, conditions on the, uh, the bail order change a couple of times. And just this last week, it was announced that he was seeking... Uh, much more uh, significant changes. And the one that got everybody's attention, as you mentioned, was the fact that he uh, wants to get rid of the clause. Right now it says that uh, there is very uh, strict restrictions on how he can communicate with his elder sister, Zainab Khadr, who is uh, notorious for her extremist Islamic views and support of uh, attacks on America. and she was the face of a lot of the uh, contacts of the Qatar family with the most serious mm-hmm. senior leaders of Al-Qaeda. Uh, and that's one of the conditions that uh, Omar Khadr now wants to have uh, so, reduced. So now his lawyer says it was the Crown that wasn't ready to proceed, and that's why the... Uh, interesting. Yeah, and that's why it was adjourned. So that I found that very interesting as well. Do you believe that? And if it is true, why wouldn't the Crown be ready? That's a very good question. I mean, I'd like to even know, generally speaking, I mean, if the, this is a, you can, uh, if you're on a, uh, if you're appealing a conviction or sentence, you can ask for bail under our criminal code, which is what it was originally done on. That's normally conducted by provincial prosecutors, uh, or real prosecutors, as we call them, who handle all the criminal code stuff. The federal Department of Justice now has a prosecutor's office, Director of Public Prosecutions, and they might work together, but you would have thought that they would work these details out up front to be ready for this, because I'll tell you something, one of the things that sort of caught my attention, one of the reasons why he says he wants to uh, change the bail conditions is because he, uh, his sister Zainab is coming back from Sudan, where she's with her fourth husband, um, and uh, she's coming back to Canada. Well, my question would be, how do you know that? If you're that's not a good, that's, a, that's a very good question, isn't it? Pardon me? That's a very good question. Well, and you know what? I read his affidavit. Yeah. There's no reference in the affidavit, for example, that he had conversations with his sister according to the conditions set out by the court. So does that mean he's breached his bail orders? And is it perhaps the fact that maybe there's a realization of that and so this thing is getting punted down the road? That's very interesting. That's you know really I mean, interesting. It, it actually is. And um, yeah. to, I, I want to be as fair about this as I can. This is our legal system. The rule of law prevails. There were some comments uh, when this story broke that, 
oh, you know, Justin Trudeau should be intervening and objecting to being released. That's nonsense. Okay, we don't need politicians interfering in individual cases. We live by the rule of law. But he did. Actually, I think Mr. Trudeau had exactly the right response. His comment or his response when asked about that was that he had confidence in the justice system. That's the correct answer. No, no, when he said uh, that it would have cost maybe more, maybe $20 million, he inserted himself into the case. No, I know what you are, yeah, yeah. So give me about, about, Scotty. frankly, is the way that the politicians intervene, and I suspect if we ever get to know the truth, that 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 is a a big part of why that deal and the uh, payoff was made. Give me this in about 30 seconds. If there's a whistleblower, and if they find the whistleblower, what are the options as far as if they decide to punish, what can they do? Well, there'll, there'll certainly be employment issues that you, they would have breached uh, emplo- employment protocols about releasing information. Depending on the nature of the information, yeah. it could be a violation of federal statutes, the Security of Information Act. There are all sorts of potential things, but if they are able to identify a person or persons that were involved in leaking the information, there will be consequences. And there could be criminal charges. Uh, it's under a different statute, but it's a federal... T- if, it, if it fits the criteria of the information that was released, potentially yes. Not okay. criminal, but under the Security of Information Act. Thank you, Scott. All right. Good talking to you Welcome always. Welcome back. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. Scott Newark, former Crown Attorney. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Professor Jason Busa, he's the editor of the 2017 Canadian Guideline for Opioids for Non-Chronic Cancer Pain. And you know we've been on this issue very hard because so many patients, chronic pain patients, are suffering tremendously because their prescription opioids have been either dramatically reduced, as you've heard, or withheld entirely by doctors who are terrified of the medical colleges in their provinces, terrified they might lose their licenses, terrified their prescription privileges will be reduced, and so the patients are the ones who are suffering. And uh, Professor Busse wanted to let me know about a situation in Hamilton where illicit drugs, illicit opioid drugs, may very well prove to be more of a problem as far as opioid overdoses are concerned than actual prescription opioids. My sense is they would find that out and just be the case in just about every Canadian city. Anyway, I had the opportunity yesterday to speak with Professor Busse. I want to play that back for you today, that conversation And think about all the people we've spoken to as you listen to my conversation with the professor. Here's how it began. Professor Busa, were you prepared for or were you surprised by the findings in the St. Michael's Hospital report suggesting in the city of Hamilton illicit opioid drugs may be playing a larger role in opioids-related deaths than prescribed opioids, and that because the rate of opioid prescription is not particularly high in the city, while it's reported Hamilton's opioid-related drug rate is quite high, when compared to other population centers in Ontario. Did that come as a surprise to you? Uh, it, it, it wasn't a complete surprise, but this is some of the first good data that we have. So we, we've known for some time that the epicenter of the opioid epidemic has been out in British Columbia. We've also known that that is a, a particular environment where illicit uh, fentanyl and carfentanyl have really uh, been become available and that the higher rates of death have always been thought uh, to be an influence uh, because of that illicit market. So it wasn't a complete surprise, but this new report does provide important data that gives us additional 
uh, evidence of that signal. How many other population centers have been studied for opioid-related deaths on a basis of opioid prescriptions written as Hamilton has been? My guess would be, by the way, that you'd have find similar results in most any significant population center in this country. Yeah, I, I haven't seen another report that's come out. I know that there's, uh, you know, efforts are underway to try to get better and better data, but but this Ontario data is some of the first I'm aware of that really has looked at the entire population. Shouldn't it have been done prior to the guideline being released? I mean, the guideline has made a really significant change and a negative change in many, many people's lives. And now the information is coming out that it's probably not the prescription opioids, but it's illicit drugs, which is what I suggested to you last time we spoke. Well, I, I, I think it's, it's a very complex issue, and there's, there's a number of factors that are probably contributing to some of the um, issues that we see around uh, overdoses and uh, addiction and fatal overdoses. So we, we do still know that uh, Canada is the second largest per capita consumer of opioids in the world. Uh, we, we prescribe at a much higher rate than, than most other places. Uh, only the U.S. prescribes a greater amount of opioids. Um, and there are some important harms that we know are associated directly with prescription opioids. Um, we do know that there is uh, approximately a 5% risk of becoming addicted. Uh, we know that physical dependence will develop in uh, anyone that's involved in long-term opioid therapy. And there, there is a, a small but important risk of experiencing an overdose, even a fatal overdose, from prescription opioids. We also know that there are uh, small but important benefits that are derived from use of opioids for chronic pain. And we understand more now than we did some of the risk factors that are associated with putting people at an elevated risk of, of either developing an addiction or perhaps an unintended overdose. And the real challenge for clinicians right now is to avoid prescribing opioids for patients who are likely to experience greater harm than benefit, but also to offer a trial of opioids for select patients who have failed non-opioid therapy and may derive important benefits. Um, that being said, I, I would agree very much that clinicians are under pressure right now to avoid prescribing opioids. They're terrified. Yeah, and, and because of this, there is a risk that uh, prior excessive use of opioids will be superseded by an overzealous reluctance to use opioids. But so aren't, you, aren't, you the, aren't you in the committee and the group that formed these guidelines? Are you not the architects of that? Well, we... The, the, the are you not in other words, are you not responsible for doctors being terrified, I'll use that word again, to provide their patients with what they need? And by the way, if Canada is the second largest, as far as... Um, opioid prescriptions is concerned, country in the world, isn't that a better thing than, uh, isn't that better than, than, than worse? Because that means that our patients are getting what they require. People who are in chronic pain, chronic agony, 24 hours a day, require help. And if the opioids provide them the help they require, what's wrong with giving them what they need? Well, I mean, you right. talk about, you talk about a, a minimal risk. A minimal risk is worth taking when you have somebody considering, actively considering suicide, based on the pain levels they have, and then when the doctors don't give them what they require and what they were given previously or prescribed previously by that same doctor in consultation, that really is causing tremendous harm to patients I've spoken to. And many of them, uh, Professor Busa, I shouldn't say many, but some I've spoken to have suggested they are going to launch lawsuits, wrongful death lawsuits, 
uh, for family members if those family members commit suicide. This is going to this has the potential to become very very nasty. Yes, and and we certainly knew going into this that this was a tremendously polarizing issue. Um, for that reason, we only made recommendations where we had evidence to guide that process. So the recommendations that were made are not based on individual opinions. Uh, this is based on systematic reviews of the literature. We've provided the evidence behind all of the recommendations. And we've made strong recommendations only where we had sufficient evidence to do so. Um, and, and even the most recent report that came out from the Ontario Drug Policy Research Network, uh, they did report on the number of opioid-related uh, deaths that have occurred in Ontario. 867 and, in 2016. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm not sure if the total numbers are in for 2016, but but, but perhaps they are. Uh, but they weren't able to tell you, you know, how many are due to prescription opioids, how many due to diversion of prescription opioids and how many do to elicit. So this is a level of detail that is extremely difficult to get. Even when I speak to coroners, it, it's a tremendous challenge to get that level of granularity. So we do need to do as good a job as we can to try to get that level of detail. I agree it's important, but we, we, we don't have a way to break it down in many cases yet. So why was it uh, necessary then to change the guidelines that were put in place in 2010 change them in the manner that you did for 2017 when you don't have the information or it's difficult to comprise the information that uh, that resulted in the guideline recommendations for this year? Why make the change at all until you have the evidence, until you have all of the information that you require? Because you're affecting literally millions of people, or more than a million in Canada and in the United States. The equivalency, I've heard some 111 million people are on chronic pain uh, living with chronic pain issues. So, so, so why change the, the recommendations at all? Right. Well, when clinicians are looking to guidelines for information, those guidelines are most helpful if they, if they reflect all of the most current best evidence. The guidelines that were put out in 2010 uh, were not able to take advantage of the you know, seven or eight years of evidence that's accumulated since they were published. Yeah. And so it's standard practice... Uh, about every five years, and certainly the National Pain Center was under contract to do an update uh, every five years of the guidelines. So the effort to update was in large part a reflection of the need to include all of the additional evidence that's come out since 2010. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. In the guidelines, you report about 5% of prescription opioids are diverted to the street. If I understand that correctly, I imagine that 5% of prescription opioid, opioids, when the prescription is filled, are diverted to street dealers. Uh, first of all, is that correct? And then secondly, how do you arrive at the 5% number? Uh, so the 5% number was derived from population surveys, actually asking individuals uh, in Canada, so not, not necessarily drug dealers, uh, have they ever used a prescription opioid that was not prescribed to them for non-medicinal purposes, and approximately 5% of respondents indicated that they had. I spoke with Dr. David Jerlink last uh, November. He was on your steering committee. And uh, I asked him about withdrawal from opioids for chronic pain patients. And he told me at the time that cutting patients off their opioids is only going to make things worse, that if a patient is going to be 
um, separated from opioid medication. It should be done extremely gradually. That's not what's happening in many cases. We have doctors telling patients, uh, we're not going to prescribe you opioids any longer because I will not, and I've had more than one patient tell me this, that the doctor said, I will not endanger my medical license. We've also been told that there have been doctors who've had, and maybe in the province of Ontario, certainly I've heard in Nova Scotia, doctors who've had their prescribing uh, opportunities or, or, or rights restricted by uh, colleges because they've been unhappy with the amounts of opioids they prescribed. So do you have, have you created a fearful physician population in Canada? Well, I, I think that this climate has been coming before the guidelines came out. And certainly there was the early adoption of the CDC guidelines back in March 2016, uh, which, which I've, I've heard, uh, you know, has been used by some of the colleges to promote some of these more restrictive standards. But I, I think it's important to be very clear about what we, what we have recommended based on the evidence. And really what we've done is we have made a recommendation that for patients currently using high doses, that they should try and decrease their dose. But I agree entirely with Dr. Yerling, and we've stated this in the guideline, that there are risks to decreasing the dose, including opioid withdrawal, which, which can be enormously problematic for some individuals. And there is the potential that if denied their prescription opioids, some individuals could even end up going to the street in order to secure illicit opioids. And that is very likely to leave them in a, a worse position than they started. Let me, read you a, let me read you a letter I received from Dr. Owen Williamson. He's the yes. president of the Pain Management Physicians of BC Society. He writes, Dear Mr. Green, I write as the president of the Pain Medicine Physicians of BC Society. In response to a comment by Dr. Mary Redmond on your show yesterday, she's a pain management doctor in Ottawa, regarding my negotiations with the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC, regarding their board policy on the prescribing of drugs with potential for misuse and abuse. They have steadfastly refused to consult with pain experts either before or since they implemented their policy, despite advice from our society and patient advocacy groups that their policy is harming people with chronic pain. They have refused to significantly revise or rescind their policy. Their policy is neither consistent with the CDC guideline nor the 2017 Canadian guideline. We believe the CPSBC is operating outside its mandate, failing to observe its core values, and is not practicing evidence-informed health policy. I'm happy to provide you with more detailed information and speak with you on or off air. I spoke on air with Dr. Williamson. If this is going on, and I have no reason to doubt Dr. Williamson, and I doubt you will either, is it not the responsibility then of your group to stand up and publicly follow up on this guide and, and recommend publicly, nationally, to colleges across this country and to doctors to listen to what you've been saying, to in fact not uh, withhold opioids from patients or, or take them away extremely quickly and to wean people on a schedule that really works for the patient? Is it not your responsibility as a group to stand up and follow up on the guidelines? Well, we certainly are attempting to do that. So we've made a, a large number of presentations. We've given a large number of uh, talks to government officials. Uh, we've certainly written about some of the college standards that we feel have the potential to be problematic, and we've published those opinions. Uh, and we've stated very clearly in our guideline, exactly as Dr. Williamson has stated, that we are not making a strong recommendation that individuals using high dose need to come down or need to come off. It's not in the guideline. He's completely accurate in that. I'll also state I've had a lot of discussions with Dr. Williamson and with his group 
Uh, we invited him to participate in the guideline. He was unable to make the time to do so, but he did send out a representative from his group that I feel made an important contribution uh, to the work that we did. So I agree with the comments that, uh, that he makes. I agree with your concerns that uh, as authors of the guideline, we do bear a responsibility to do whatever we can to ensure that the recommendations we've made are appropriately interpreted and appropriately implemented, uh, and we're certainly committed to uh, to continuing those efforts. Yeah, I would suggest that you uh, maybe contact media. You, you've contacted me, and I appreciate that, but I think your group should be contacting media across the country and making this point so that doctors don't miss it. So we have uh, doctors who are afraid, as we've heard many times, to uh, prescribe the opioid medications to their patients. I also spoke uh, in November of last year with uh, Dr. David Gerling, who's one of the leading physicians, who was a member of this panel for the guidelines, one of the leading physicians in Canada on the issue of opioids and prescribing them. Here's what he said what doctors should and shouldn't do. I think this is an important point to make, and if there's any doctor listening to this program or any patient listening, I can't say this clearly enough. We have a, a crisis of addiction in Canada and in the U.S., but we're not going to fix that by destabilizing people on pain medicine and by cutting them off. We're going to make it worse, right? So if I have a patient on high doses of opioids for chronic pain, which is generally not a good idea, um, but they're out there, and they're out there in large numbers. If we start cutting their, their doses you know, in a hurry, um, uh, they're going to get sick. Uh, they're going to go into withdrawal, uh, and they might well seek whatever release they can get, including buying stuff on the street, and that's going to make things worse. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. I'm going to be speaking tomorrow with Barry Ulmer, the executive director of the Chronic Pain Association of Canada. Mr. Ulmer's association was also asked for its input into the guidelines, but from what I now understand, while the Chronic Pain Association of Canada provided input you asked for, their input was not included in the guideline. Is that so? And if so, why? Uh, no, we, we did receive uh, the, uh, the comments from, uh, from his group as well as comments from over 500 other groups. Uh, these were all considered synthesized. They were discussed with the steering committee, uh, and we, we certainly did consider all that information we received uh, in the final version of the guideline. Did you include anything from the Chronic Pain Association's recommendations? Uh, I, I, we, I'm going to have to go back to that specific letter. I, I recall that we reviewed it, but we reviewed so much material that I can't tell you off the top of my head what aspects of it, but we, we did feel that the final guidelines addressed the concerns. I can't tell you if there were particular components that we inserted into the guideline uh, based on that one letter. All right, Professor Boucher, if I understand correctly, members of the patient advisory panel have now also washed their hands of the finished product, the official guideline. Is that true? Uh, I, I, I'm not aware of that. We had, um, we had uh, 16 individuals that worked with us for a two-year period. Uh, we gained uh, great uh, insight from their input and their involvement. Uh, we, we were extremely committed to including the voice of patients living with chronic pain. When we went to publish the final guideline, we made a commitment only to publish the names of individuals that provided us with written consent. Uh, I reached out to all of the patient advisory committee members, all 16. Out of those 16, there were three uh, that indicated to me that they were uncomfortable having their name publicly released. Uh, I certainly respected that, and so we've published the names of 13 of the members that provided me with written consent. 
but I didn't follow up with members to to you know the three members that were uncomfortable to ask uh, uh, the reasons behind their other decision. A very prominent physician provided me with some information that I'm going to share with you now and ask you to comment on. I will not name him because I haven't received his permission to do so. But he has uh, communicated to me that doctors are communicating among themselves about pain patients increasingly committing suicide, patients whose opioid meds are being significantly reduced or withheld, again, by doctors who may be intimidated by the guidelines. Have you heard anything at all about doctors among themselves talking about increased numbers of patients, pain patients, committing suicide? Well, I did, uh, I did speak with Maria Hudsmith, who's the, um, who, who runs Pain BC out in British Columbia, and she had advised me that she had heard from some of her members, some of the chronic pain patients they worked with, that because of uh, some individual's experiences with being cut off or drastic reductions, that they, they had looked to the street to gain illicit opioids. And, and of course, when you do that, I think the risk of suffering uh, an overdose, even a fatal overdose, because you don't know what you're getting, is definitely there. So I, I don't know of, of direct stories, but I certainly acknowledge it's a risk. And again, it's, it's one of the reasons that we put a very, very specific remark associated with our recommendation for tapering patients. Um, and that remark, if I could just read it exactly, states, states this. It states, some patients may have a substantial increase in pain or decrease in function that persists for more than one month after a small dose reduction. Tapering may be paused or potentially abandoned in such patients. So we, we do provide that flexibility. Uh, and because we've made a, only a weak recommendation about tapering, which reflects the evidence, it is entirely reasonable for a patient informed by their physician of the benefits and risks and some of the associated uncertainty to choose to try to lower their dose but another might choose to leave well enough alone. So I believe if our guideline recommendation is appropriately interpreted, it is going to guard against the kind of risk that you're talking about. All right, so what is happening then clearly across this country should not be happening, and that is doctors either completely and very quickly uh, withholding opioid prescriptions from their patients or not tapering them off but rushing them off their prescription dosage. That should not be happening. Yes, that, that, that is not an appropriate interpretation of the recommendations that we've All made. Right. Now, I, just I goes back to the last question that I raised about doctors communicating among themselves about pain patients increasingly committing suicide. This wasn't about pain patients going to the street dealers and overdosing the product from them. This was about doctors communicating among themselves about pain patients committing suicide because their prescriptions had been significantly reduced or withheld. That's what the issue is. Yes, but, but again, as per our recommendation, if it was followed appropriately, that situation should not occur. We, we make no recommendations for aggressive tapering. We make no recommendations for cutting patients off their opioids. And our one recommendation that does talk about tapering patients at high doses, it's a weak recommendation only. It's a values and preference decision that should involve the patient. And we make an explicit remark associated with that, that if patients are running into problems with the tapering, it is perfectly reasonable to either pause that taper or perhaps to abandon it altogether. So if that recommendation is appropriately applied, the kind of scenarios that you're talking about will not result. 
Well, we have uh, many, many doctors, maybe the majority of doctors, it appears certainly the majority of doctors, misinterpreting what the guidelines are suggesting then. I'm going to leave you with one, uh, with one comment that I received from a senior emergency department physician. He writes, as opioids are more available, there's been a rise in opioid addiction in the general population, but that does not mean in deaths. But still, these are not reasons to deprive us and our patients of a great therapeutic tool for a terrible condition, acute and chronic pain, which is one of the leading causes to visit an emergency department in the Western world. If we should restrict or ban any substance that causes addiction and extremely common and serious health consequences, including numerous deaths down the road, why don't we start with tobacco and alcohol? It just does not make common clinical sense. I'm glad that some people are starting to speak out and that some hidden agendas are finally coming to light. That is from a senior emergency department physician who I believe is going to go public and, uh, and join me on the air. That seems to be, if I, can come, if, I, if I can find a consensus view that I've heard from doctors, not the patients now, but from doctors, that, that, those few lines from that email would, I think, mirror the consensus view that I've heard, Professor Busse. Yes, exactly. I, again, the, the current evidence that we have is that there are a number of alternatives to opioids that for many individuals will show similar benefits, but without the risks of uh, addiction and overdose. But it is certainly the case that there is evidence that some patients will achieve important benefits for their chronic pain with opioids. And as I've noted, the real challenge is for uh, patients that are at high risk of adverse outcomes uh, to be uh, guided away from an opioid because they're likely to experience more harm than benefit, but also to ensure that clinicians are offering a trial of opioids for patients who have failed non-opioid therapy and may derive important benefit. So there's uh, Professor Jason Boucher, as I recorded the interview yesterday. Sometimes he sounded more like um, former health minister Philpott, but more eloquent than the minister. But he continues to stress that patients should not be separated entirely from their opioids. The doctor should not be doing that. And if the patient is not comfortable with the tapering, then the tapering should stop. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Dan, Dan McDaig, former Liberal Member of Parliament, Senior Petroleum Analyst at GasBuddy.com. Mr. McTagg, <laughs> Mr. McTagg, let me read you. Let me read you a quick line that came uh, from a listener by way of email a few minutes ago. Yeah. Last night, I looked up where our gas comes from. I live in Dunville, Ontario, and yeah. found that the gas for this area mostly comes from the refinery in Natticoke. So, yeah. how is it that supply impacted by a storm in Texas? And you know what the rest is. This guy can see the refinery, well, almost from where he lives. And his gas prices have gone up. Why? Well, yeah, it's funny, uh, Roy. Thank you for that. Uh, and yes, you can call me friend, even though I'm raging extremely gracefully, uh, much faster than you, I must say. All that gray <laughs> hair, but uh, I think it's uh, it's all of those questions that I've had to handle over the years, and glad to still do so. Um, that refinery behind there is uh, one of a few refineries left in Canada. We don't produce enough necessarily to meet our own domestic needs, and in fact, ironically, that refinery, if you're uh, our friend who wrote in uh, looks takes a very careful look. He'll see that there's probably a lot of hoarding and boarding going on there. It's up for maintenance. That uh, There's not a lot of gasoline coming out of that refinery right now, at least over the next couple of weeks as they go through 
scheduled maintenance. So, um, you know, this was a time of year where a lot of refineries turned their attention from making more expensive to produce ga- uh, summer gasoline over to the winter blends, which will exist from September 16th, uh, September 15th until pretty much April 15th. But the bigger issue is can Canada, does Canada produce, produce enough gasoline to fill the gap in the United States of almost one-third of refinery capacity knocked offline because of Hurricane Harvey? Uh, you know, normally there's speculation, there's all sorts of games. I can, I spent a generation, as you know, on the station with you and with Linda Leatherdale and some of your other colleagues and guests like Catherine Swift, Michelle Simpson. Right. They know the routine. The issue here is that one-third of the largest producer of gasoline in the world, largest consumer of gasoline, one-third of tanks could go empty next week if refineries don't get up uh, running very soon. And that will hit us right here to the south of the border. Now, this is why, because we just don't have the refining capacity or refining uh, options. And is that because we decided, we, the collective we decided, we didn't want more refineries, what, 15, 20 years ago? Well, we didn't think we needed them. They were uh, expensive to maintain. And, hey, if you get an oligopoly, you can get much higher prices. But that's always the case. Mm-hmm. What makes this situation even worse uh, is the fact that uh, we're looking at uh, the prospect of uh, gasoline prices moving up by 60, 70 cents a gallon, or such to 18 cents a liter, if those prices did not go up. And, by the way, I'm not justifying it, but I'm saying that the market price for gasoline continentally, and we do price into that market, we, when we sell oil, we want world prices for our products. When we buy our oil, we pay world prices for our, our products, uh, our, well, that which we consume. What we're looking at right now is the fundamental potential for a shortage, and Americans will be coming north of the border, buying more of our gasoline if we have any left over, especially if it's available at bargain basement prices at 70 cent uh, bargains as well, because, of course, the Canadian dollar, the Canadian exchange is very favorable to a U.S. buyer. The concern I have is not as much the price, which I think is an eye-popping issue. I'm glad I've been able to anticipate two days ahead for everybody across Canada. I know a lot of people take it for granted, but that didn't exist 10, 15 years ago. The reason I do that is to give people a hedge. They had two days to know it was going up 14 cents. Thankfully, but the reality is that these prices are going to stay very high until the crisis in the United States ends. And we see those refineries have been badly hit, flooded, damaged, can't get oil, can't produce gasoline. And the main pipeline, which is truly the lifeblood of, uh, of motorists and the U.S. economy, which runs from uh, the Louisiana, Texas, Gulf Coast, all the way to pretty much New York, New Jersey, to be in fact, that's offline. There's no gasoline. So uh, with a shortage, you have a far more serious problem. If we didn't raise our prices, you wouldn't have gasoline next week. And of course, we have pipeline construction in this country very much compromised. Um, yes, including by people like your former caucus colleague, yeah. Danny Kader, who has no issues with Middle East oil tankers on the St. Lawrence River, though. I think a half a billion uh, uh, gallons of uh, sewage into the uh, Great Lakes, yeah. the St. Lawrence River. Yes, no, he's wrong. <laughs> and he's wrong because he's, he fought with me to prevent the closure of the Shell refinery in Montreal, knowing it would have enormous devastating impacts, not just for the Montreal economy, but in fact for uh, a good part of uh, uh, the North American economy. Uh, and, of course, uh, we still buy a lot of gasoline here in Ontario, which comes, ironically, from Quebec. So, you know, you can't have it both ways. Uh, we need fossil fuels. It isn't just gasoline. It isn't just diesel. It's the entire structure of our society. We've advanced in the past 100 years. So for those advocating, you know, not having pipelines, not having fossil fuels, look, I'm not big on 
uh, you know, pollution, but I'm also not big on going back to the state of nature and eating acorns and wearing uh, animal skins to keep myself warm in the middle of winter. Yeah, tell me this, Dan, and we have listeners all the way from uh, British Columbia to Ontario. What's the worst case scenario as far as the cost of gasoline and availability is concerned over the longer term? Well, I think the weekend will tell us much. Uh, we'll see if uh, those ports that were shut down have been reopened. Some of them are opened on condition. We'll see if uh, ships can get in to deliver crude, if the pipelines delivering those crude deliveries work. We'll see whether those refineries, the engineers, and those doing assessments of those refineries to assess the level of damage. You know, uh, 30 degree water and 800 degree uh, uh, units produce and turn crude into gasoline by bending the molecules at high, high heat don't mix. And there's probably a lot more damage than and it could be several months before some of those refineries are back online, which means the continent will be short gasoline. And that means that the price that we're paying today, uh, you know, here in the Golden Horseshoe, uh, out, uh, $1.30, $1.32, out in Vancouver, $1.45, to a lesser extent in Western Canada because of lower taxes and uh, a different market, $1.10. And, of course, Montreal, which hasn't had its final kick in the pants, but I'm sure Mayor Coderre will hear a lot plenty come Monday, uh, Tuesday morning when it's $1.45. Yeah. And the Maritimes at $1.30. Those prices are likely to remain at least for the next couple of weeks, but they will not be going back to where okay. they were last year, two weeks ago. The only thing I'd suggest is, as far as the kicker in the pants is concerned, for Coderre, turn them around. <laughs> uh, well, <laughs> I won't go there. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, Dan. All the best to you. Thanks for the information. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. While I was away, one of our listeners in uh, in Alberta, and I appreciate it, sent me uh, a story from Oil Week magazine. And it's about Joe Dion, and uh, it's about... Mr. Dion as the uh, CEO and the president, chairman and CEO, of the Frog Lake Energy Resources Corporation. And and here's how the uh, article describes what Frog Lake Energy is all about. Frog Lake Energy Resources is an oil and gas exploration and production company that's wholly owned by the people of the Frog Lake First Nation. The company is part of an indigenous expansion into equity ownership in natural resources development and infrastructure projects. This goes beyond just taking jobs or security service contracts. Mr. Dion himself, and again quoting from the article, as constitutional coordinator for the Indian National Indian Brotherhood in the early 1980s, Dion played a direct role in the entrenchment of indigenous rights in the Canadian Constitution under then Prime Minister Pierre Trudeau, the political power that came out of that, now holds a strong allure for other groups, and among those other groups are environmental groups. And according to what uh, Mr. Dion is reported to have said as well, environmentalists have hijacked the indigenous agenda. A lot to talk about. Joe Dion joins us on the Roy Green Show on the Chorus Radio Network. Mr. Dion, thank you for the time, and congratulations on the success with your corporation. Thanks very much, Roy. So... It took it took many years to obtain and confirm indigenous rights. Now both the federal government, the private sector, and the United Nations enshrined First Nations rights, and uh, this does extend directly to exploration and development of natural resources. Does it not? It sure does. Yep. Um, and so, so, what does the uh, First Nations National Energy Strategy Treaty state? Let's talk about that as well. The treaty, sure. the First Nations National Energy Strategy Treaty. What does that state in layman's terminology? Well, basically, what we're looking for, Roy, was a a, 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 
response from the Prime Minister. This goes back a year ago now, in July it was, uh, when we published it amongst uh, amongst the ten, the top ten producers, uh, the top ten all producers of Canada, basically looking for a way out of the gridlock that we're still in this country, um, pipeline gridlock then and still on today. Uh, 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 there's a couple of approvals, of course. One of them, well, one of the projects is, is under construction, of course, in, 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 um, from Hardesty to Wisconsin. The other one is, is, is still caught up, not caught up yet, but uh, still being challenged in courts. This is the Trans Mountain Line coming to Vancouver. From Edmonton, so there there are still challenges out there, and we, we've we've reached out to the prime minister at the time, and looking for a, a, a to have him sit down with us and uh, work up a an arrangement where First Nations and uh, and other other groups, Aboriginal groups across the country, would basically take a stake, have a stake in in in, in the in the in, in, in the resort development of this country by way of equity or revenue sharing, as I as as we called it. So, so now, how did uh, let's go back to your corporation, Frog Lake Energy Resources Corporation? How did that come about, and how satisfactory and how difficult has the project been to uh, to get to the point where you are now? And how's it benefited the uh, the community or the the the, in, the First Nations community of, of Frog Lake? Well, basically, Roy, what happened was the the up until then, this is going back 15, 15 years ago, Frog Lake took a passive interest in all the development on their lands and basically took a royalty position from, from the companies that were developing resources, oil and, oil and gas on their land. They, they changed the tack. They basically said, we want to co-own, we want to co-participate with, with these projects. So rather than leasing the land to companies, they lease the land to themselves. In this case, the Frog Lake Oil Energy, I mean, the Frog Lake Energy Resources Corp. We then turned around, turned, uh, turned around and, and we farmed out these lands to our partners. And so far today, we've probably had, we've gone through seven partners um, on, the land, on our land and some of them off the reserve as well. So basically what, what, what's ha- what happens here, Roy, is that we have a revenue stream coming from the royalties, but, but also there's a revenue stream coming from our own production as an oil company. And that, that production has been very good. We've, of course, during the oil prices, when oil prices were much higher, we did extremely well. We, we, we went through millions of dollars of, of revenues and, and, paid, and paid millions of dollars in, 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 in royalties to, our, to, 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 to the nation, as well as, as, well as, as well as created a lot of jobs. And with the revenues coming from the, from the company and from the, from the community, built roads, built houses, built rec centers, and create and create a, a lot of employment. And how's that impacted just the quality of life for the population of the Frog First Nations, uh, Frog Lake uh, First Nations, and 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 if you would compare the and I, I don't want to do this in a negative way, but if you would compare what you've been able to accomplish and how life has improved for people of the Frog Lake First Nations versus perhaps. Other uh, bands or, or um, uh, tribal organizations that may not have followed uh, the same course you have you have followed. Well, Roy, I guess we were fortunate enough to have the resources. you had the resources to begin with. On right? our land, I mean that that, that, yeah. that, that comes with it. Of course, there's I mean, there was of course there's envy. There's there's those types of things that go that go between uh, amongst communities, but. Um, but but overall, it, it was a positive, um, a, a very positive 
uh, um, impact in uh, with the members and of course uh, with with the jobs being created. Yeah, and I'm not I'm not trying to I'm not trying to pit First Nation First Nation against no, no, no. First Nation because I want to bring into this discussion with you this conversation with you where the federal government today stands because the federal government has a role to play. And there are treaties and treaty obligations, and you worked hard on that in the 1980s, as yep. we pointed out. Yep. And, and is today, in 2017, is the federal government doing what it can and what it should? Uh, we know that they, the ministry exists, and we know they have billions of dollars. And I wonder how much they spend on themselves as opposed to spending on uh, the, the, the people they're supposed to look after, or not look after, but supposed to provide assistance as required. Um, how, how significantly positive is the relationship with the federal government of Canada? Or where are the challenges? Well, you know, there's been some recent shifts in with this government in as far as the relationship with the First Nations and I guess in general with Indigenous peoples. They're 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 trying to, I guess, make a difference. I I, I know uh, with the recent um, um, uh, splitting of the of of the department. Uh, um, Making one services and one crown, and one one crown relationships, uh, one crown relationships with, with with First Nations being being the focus. They're they're I think they're they're trying to make a difference, but I don't I don't I don't know if it's going to have a lasting impact as such unless until I think when I mean I mean I believe when First Nations start taking lead ourselves. When we when 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 we start making the the the, the proposals and 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 the recommendations to government and 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 also amongst ourselves, what what happens is when when somebody else is telling you what 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 you should do, there's a big difference in that than 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 knowing what you should do yourself. Right, and when that somebody else has the money, or has money that you require, <laughs> and that somebody else decides how that money is going to be dispersed. That causes an additional that, stress factor, doesn't it? I, I, I mean, absolutely. I think where we need to go with the relationship with the Crown and First Nations is that, and they're talking about this in, 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 in the dialogue, as I see, basically making First Nations equal, um, bringing them on as equal partners, and I think that's a, that's a huge step. Um, the but without without resources, Roy. Without resources, you really can't be an equal partner. I mean, if you're broke, and someone wants to make you an equal partner, what I mean, you 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 have no leverage. So that's this, and and so this is where the treaty comes in that we've been talking about. That that with revenue sharing and equity participation, as we call it, the you 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 want to see the resource uh, rich country of ours being shared by First Nations. First Nations governments along with the other governments. You're listening to The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML. Now, Joe Dion is the chairman, CEO of the Frog Lake Energy Resources Corporation, an oil and natural gas exploration and production company in the corporations fully owned and operated by the people of the Frog Lake First Nation. Let me read a few lines from the Oil Week magazine uh, article, which features Mr. Dion. Economics is the driver for the participation that is between governments and uh, and or private and industry and uh, and First Nations. Economics is the driver for this participation, but traditional indigenous values are part of the package as well. Of course, we'll protect the environment. Dion said, "Stopping development isn't hard to do, but how are you going to eat? We need to speak up for the poverty that is out there 
in our communities. We need to address how we're going to get our people out of poverty when the majority of wealth is being held by so few. Poverty outstrips all of the concerns about climate change and environment. If you focus too much on climate change, First Nations will be at a standstill and we won't have any development, so climate change is important, but it's not everything. Joe, I know the environment is of tremendous concern, tremendous concern to you, tremendous concern to your, to your First Nation, but the environmentalist's agenda is not necessarily the same as yours, and I think they're being paternalistic by suggesting that they have the better idea or the better plan to protect the environment than you do. Well... You know what? We've been here, what does Conrad Black say, 20,000 years, maybe more. And this country was, was fairly healthy when the Europeans came to this country. So we have a track record when it comes to protecting the environment. So I think uh, we, we, we can handle the environment quite well. Uh, obviously, obviously, there's science around a lot of these uh, 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 surrounding environmental issues, and yeah, we're we're open to ideas, we're open to suggestions from groups who want to work with us. But 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 for them to stop um, um, projects that uh, could help lift our communities, um, that's not. I think serving our um, our best interests. So, so basically, I think there there needs to be cooperation from all parties. There needs to be cooperation from 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 environmentalists and 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 with First Nations, and also with corporations and governments. There are classic worldwide examples of how this can happen. And Norway was a was an absolute example where they got the environmentalists, the Aboriginal people together, and the corporations and government. They were able to um, drill offshore wells off the off the shores of Norway, and yet people still could fish. So I think I think I think there's a there's a balance here that can be created, but I don't think we can we can as First Nations be be, be sitting aside and watching our jobs disappear because environmentalists uh, want to stop development. What's the issue that we need to talk about that we haven't yet? I mean, you and I today, what 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 needs to be addressed? I think I think the 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 the, the positive I mean the the poverty that's out there in our communities, which 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 is which is really really rampant, uh, uh, comparing to worldwide conditions. Uh, I think we're we're there in our communities, and that's the that to me is the biggest topic we should address. And 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 basically we're looking for for ways of how we can lift these folks out of poverty. The individuals who need help out there um, that um, could could use jobs, could use education, um, get themselves out of, out, out of poverty. Um, obviously, I mean that's a big question. Yeah, it's a, it's it's it's, it's terrible to see what's going on when you hear about the suicides of the children and you see how people are living in the depth of, of a Canadian winter. It's 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 horrific, but. On the upside, with the Frog Lake Energy Resources Corporation, there's an example being set, and other uh, Indian nations as well. First Nations uh, are, are doing the same thing. Sure, uh, yeah. The, the example is being set about how things can be done differently, can be done successfully, and can be done economically uh, viably while protecting the environment at the same time. Absolutely. I think, I, I, um, Roy, there, is, there are ways of doing this, and all it takes is is for people to put their minds together and basically cooperate with each other 
and everybody has answers to these 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 uh, these trying issues, of course. Yeah, Joe, it's uh, been an honor to speak with you, and I I congratulate you on the success of the uh, the corporation, and more success to you, and hopefully. People will learn from from what you've done. Other examples also, not only in Canada and the United States, but internationally, can be accomplished. And you're a living example of that. Thanks very much. Really All the best. This. We'll talk to you again. Okay, thanks. Thank you, Joe Dion. From Frog Lake First Nation, it's the uh, Energy Resources Corporation. The Roy Green Show, weekends from 2 to 5 on AM 900 CHML.